With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. some fun this morning as we look at the living word of God. And I just want to say, if you missed last weekend, go watch it online. If you missed it, you missed Pastor Scott reminiscing about his high school sports career. And over the last week, it got me to thinking about my time in high school. And for me, I ran track. Now, let me beat you to the punchline because no, I did not do the long jump, I did not do the high jump, and no, these short little legs did not do the hurdles. But I was a sprinter, and I could sprint like nobody's business. I was like an Asian road runner out there. The 100, the 200, the 400 relay, I could do them all. And then I remember one season, we got a brand new sprinting coach. And he huddled us all up and gathered us together because he wanted to share some new running insights and tips. However, they weren't new to a lot of us. And so as we were there, and, and as I was an experienced sprinter, I kind of tuned out. I mean, I knew what he was going to say. And so while I was physically present... Mentally, I was checked out. And I remember that I suffered for it at the next track meet. Because it turns out I didn't know everything he was going to share, even though I was convinced I did. I share this with you this morning because today's text is among the most well-known, most memorized, most referenced to passages in Scripture. And so if you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, it's likely you know this passage. You've sat under teaching of this passage. My warning to you is don't be like me with my sprint coach. Be open to what it is God has for you today. What new insight or known truth God wants to remind you about. So far in Ephesians, Paul has spent his time talking about how great God is about their spiritual adoption, their redemption, the fullness of God, how God is all above and below and the past and the present. And as we continue today, we land on chapter two and 10 verses that look back to the past and convey one very big idea. 
Paul, who is still writing from prison, begins this way. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He says you. He's very personal. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he's speaking to the church at Cornwall. He also says were. He's speaking past tense. He's assuming that you've made the decision to follow after Christ. You've crossed that line, that decision, and now you're Christians. Were is also a key word because it's the highlight, the silver lining in an otherwise dim statement. And he says, you were what? He says, you were dead. In fact, dead here translated is actually corpse. He's calling you, you are corpses in your sin and transgressions. He continues, he says, in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then Paul takes his scope and he widens it a bit. He takes it from you to we and us. And he continues, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Not exactly a feel-good passage so far. But what Paul wants to make sure we understand is what we need to see, not what we want to see. Now there's some good news. He uses were, again, again speaking to the past, who you were prior to Christ. But the tough news is, is that Paul doesn't mince words. At our time before Christ, we were sinners. We gave into our own selves. We were under the influence of Satan. We were trespassing rebels. We were me-centric. And we were encouraged to give in to whatever made us feel good or the most happy. In fact, the word trespass here actually means a willful neglect of God. You know, we, we see here we followed in the ways of the world we gratified our own cravings, what, what made us happy. Paul would warn to the Romans the same thing. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. As clear as he can be, Paul reminds them as to their state, their condition on their own before Christ. It's how we begin this chart that on our own led to our own devices. We are dead. We're dead. And, and he's referencing Everyone. The first three chapters of Ephesians speak to both the Jews and the Gentiles, both guilty of sin, both in their same standing before God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul's saying any of you that are alive with a heartbeat are dead to the one who gave you that heartbeat. In other words, before a life in Christ, we are living dead people. We're living dead people. And it might seem like a contradiction, but it's very possible to be in two states at the same time. I remember in high school going to see Pacific Northwest Ballet's The Nutcracker. And I can tell you with 100% confidence, I was there physically, but emotionally, I was not there at all. <laughs> or ask an introvert after the company Christmas party how they're doing. Physically, they're standing before you. Emotionally, socially, they're tanked. Or someone can be financially rich, but morally poor. The same is true here with Paul's assertion 
that before Christ, we were alive, but only alive physically. Spiritually, which is far more important, we were corpses. It's very possible then that you're here at Cornwall and that you attend on the weekend and that you pray and that you give, maybe you even serve. But if you have not crossed that line of faith, Christ is not ruling your life, then you too are a living dead person. In Disneyland, there's an attraction, the Haunted Mansion. And as you weave through the Haunted Mansion, you eventually pass by the conservatory. There's crows and cobwebs and whatnot, but the centerpiece of the conservatory is a coffin. And for nearly 50 years, the same guy has been trying to get out of that coffin. In fact, as you go by, you see his hands lifting the lid saying, get me out of here. Over and over and over. You see, a corpse is very comfortable in a coffin because there's no life there. But if you were in that coffin, you would feel suffocated. You'd be uncomfortable. You'd be claustrophobic. You would have a very strong urge to get out of that coffin. And the same is true here. When we were spiritually dead, we felt comfortable in our trespasses and swimming around in our sin. But having come to a new life, we want to escape that coffin and leave it far behind. Which is why the next two words are pivotal. Paul says this, but God. He says, but God. A divine interruption of a grander plan This phrase, but God, is used 41 times throughout Scripture. It's a conjunction that changes everything. Your spiritual condition is here, but God. But God is critical. In other words, despite our condition, God interceded. He interceded for you. You see, nothing shocks God. Nothing catches God by surprise. He knew he would need to save us. And so he created, he designed salvation. On our behalf, God rescued us. He's the hero of the story. But why this intercession? Well, Paul continues and he tells us, but God, who is rich in mercy, Because of his great love for us. Pause. I'm going to tell you something you already know. As great as you are, it gives no reason for God to love us. And yet in the greatness of his love, he loves us anyway. Like an agape kind of love. Agape love is that selfless love that thinks of you more than me. That's the love God has for us. Agape love is also a demonstrative love. Agape love requires action. The person to demonstrate, I love you so much, to demonstrate that in a practical way. In this verse, God's love prompts him to show mercy to those who haven't earned it. And that love is abundant. He has lots of it, a never-ending flow. So we look back at our chart and we see that on our own, we are dead. But then God intercedes with his love and his mercy that we have never experienced before. It's the secret sauce of the Christian life. Undeserving people receiving relentless love and mercy from a loving God. 
We see this in the Old Testament with the Israelites. We see it in our lives today. But wait, there's more. God, rich in mercy and love, intercedes and then he goes on, made us alive. He made us alive. He goes on. He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Wayne Barber offers it this way. People do what they do because of who they are. You do what you do because of what you are. You can't change that. Only Jesus can. It's when we were dead that he makes us alive. It's how our flow chart finishes. That in the beginning, on our own, left to our own devices, we are dead people, physically alive, spiritually dead. God intercedes and says, my love is great, my mercy is great, and I love you too much. And he creates in Christ, in you, an aliveness. This is Paul's illustration of before and after. Maybe you've seen The Biggest Loser or any ad for a weight loss program on TV. You know how it goes. The left side is a picture who, of a person that doesn't look very happy. And on the right, someone who looks extremely happy. On the left, they're probably wearing baggy clothes and frowning. And on the right, they're wearing an Under Armour athletic outfit and doing something like this. Because they've changed. It's different. They are helping you visualize who they were Versus who they are now. And if before we were living dead, we are now living alive. And more than just alive, as if that weren't good enough, Paul continues, he says this, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I'm sure you've experienced the grace of God. You've seen that, that little bit of his character, of who he is, his nature, the incomparable, the unfathomable, unbelievable grace that is available to you. There's another thing here that's interesting. Paul says in and not with. That grace we get, we are in Christ, not with Christ. For those that have had their heavenly homecoming, they are with Christ. I think of Helen Kristen here from the Bellingham campus or Joanne Wright at our Skagit campus. They are with Christ. Have no doubt they are having an incredible worship service right now with Christ. Christ. But for us here, waiting on the tarmac of life, we are in Christ. Paul affirms this with us, that as we are in Christ, that's our identity. We found, we're found in him. Where Christ is, we are. And ultimately, we have this assurance of a new final destination. Paul would describe this to the Philippians. He would say, our citizenship is in heaven. Your passport has been stamped. Your new destination is heaven. Talk about an incredible promotion. But how often, how often do we as Christ followers sprint coach this? 
How often do we take this for granted? Yeah, 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 I know, I've read this, I've heard this, I get this, I memorize this in Awana, move on. But just consider for one second where we were, sinless, the God of the universe decides despite our condition that he'll save us and give us an aliveness that only he can provide. That only God can provide. And if you pause to grasp that truth, it ought to blow your mind. Paul continues to ensure we get this point. As he continues on, he repeats for the second time this. For the second time he says, For it is by grace you have been saved. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He starts with that very key sentence. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Saved by grace, our salvation, our rescue from our spiritual death is God's work alone. Grace by its definition is undeserved favor or unearned approval. For the visual learners in the room, think about God's grace like this. We're saved by grace. The first part is God's redemption. God's redemption, God choosing you. Saying, I want to redeem you. I love you. But there was a cost to this. Not a cost to us. But there was a cost, and we are extended this redemption by God at Christ's expense. So we get to experience this amazing redemption at the cost of Christ's life. Paul would present the same truth to the Romans when he would say, but God, there it is again, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if it's God's grace that saves us, what's our part? Belief. It's belief. That's our part. The verse says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We're not saved merely by a faith, but by grace through faith. A faith response to the gospel. And we get hung up on this sometimes. It could be because this speaks to the intangible. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and an assurance about what we cannot see. Faith is easy and simple and difficult at the exact same time. But at its core, faith is a leap into something we believe in. And when we jump into a faith with God, he's right there for us. Paul would tell the Romans this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Declare, believe, you're saved. The NLT will say this, God saved you by his grace when you first believed. And John 1.12 would say, but to all who believed and accepted him, he, God, gave them the right to become children of God. This is our only responsibility, to believe. 
In fact, Paul makes it clear as he continues on in the next verse. It says this, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, quick point of reference, point of clarity here. He's just been talking about us and our onus of faith. Here he's talking about salvation. And this is salvation, not from yourselves. It, salvation, is a gift from God. This is not about you. It is for you. What Paul is attempting to do is lay out what is nearly all God's doing and the very little part that is ours. Truly, God's gift of salvation is unmatchable and invaluable. It's unmatchable and invaluable. There's no gift on any registry that will ever match this gift of salvation. And the richest person in the world could never afford to buy it. Charles Spurgeon would say it this way. When we offer a gift to someone and they refuse it, we're likely to allow them to refuse and let them go. God does not do this with us. Even when we refuse his mercy, he reaches into his storehouse of grace and persists us, begging us to take his free gift. Paul continues, he says, this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God and it's not by works so that no one can boast. If salvation was the accomplishment of man in any way, we would brag about it. We would tweet about it. We'd put it on Facebook and God knows that. So under God's plan of salvation, he alone gets the glory. So therefore God's gift of salvation is not merit-based. It's not merit-based. And this is sometimes hard for us to get because we understand it here, but it's hard for us to live it out here. It's challenging for us. And why is that? Well, we live in a world where we are required to earn our way. You want career advancement? Put in the long hours. You want better health? Well, got to exercise and eat right. You want a financial future? Well, then set your priorities and save. Want to go to a good college? Pick the right classes and study hard. Basically, earn your way to what you want. We get regular practice in merit-based living. But Paul is emphatic in ensuring that you understand no amount of hard work, no number of gold stars or pats on the back will increase or decrease the grace given to you or the salvation gifted for you. We've got to believe that we cannot work for our salvation and that Jesus has done everything already. The NLT will say it this way, God saved you by his grace and you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. In other words, we don't get to take credit, not even a little bit. It's kind of like when your parents give you a birthday gift and it's perfectly wrapped, maybe with a ribbon and a bow, and on top is a card. And you open the card, and there's the Hallmark greeting, and below that is a personalized, handwritten birthday greeting to you. Happy birthday, have a great day, hope you enjoy this gift. Love, Mom. And below that, and Dad. 
The dads are laughing because they know it's true. Dad has no idea what's in that gift, but he wants a little bit of credit. That's not the case here. God's saying, this gift, it's all me, and it's all for you. The bottom line is God's gift of salvation is by God for us. It's by him for us because we are his workmanship. He first created us and breathed life into us. And then he recreated us. He renewed us when we said, yes, we are in. God saves us from the wrath that we rightly deserve and makes something beautiful out of us. Paul says this beautifully. He says, for we are God's handiwork. Your version might say uh, uh, workmanship or, or work of art. For we are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God intercedes for us and meets us where we are and loves us too much to leave us there. So his love should overwhelm, it should transform, and it should inspire a desire to do these good works. And there's a difference between have to and want to. If I have to do something, my attitude is probably poor or indifferent. My body language will say the same. But if I want to do something, everything changes. And more than that, everyone around me knows it. It's why God's gift of salvation is both personal and a story worth telling, worth sharing. It's personal because it's individualized to you. In the midst of your story, God met you and offered you a gift of life-changing salvation just for you. And it's personal. It's also worth telling because what you say to others and how you serve and what you do, that reflects Christ as well. A testimony is not the only way that we can share about a new life in Christ. Realizing and embracing that you are a workmanship, that you are God's handiwork, and that he specifically purposed good works just for you. But a note, not to pay off any divine debt or to prove yourself to God or to earn your spot in heaven, but doing good works because you want to. Seeking after and accomplishing these good works. It's outward evidence of someone walking as a child of God. And how do you know what these good works are for you? You ask. You simply ask. God is the one who initiated this. Jesus is the pathway to making us alive. And so the Holy Spirit is left to be the power to make it happen. So engage the Holy Spirit for the how. I think back to our doers series as we walk through James. And James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, too bad. No, it doesn't say that actually. Don't tell Pastor Bob I did that. <laughs> it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. And here's what's incredible. He goes on to say, God gives generously without finding fault. So ask God over and over and over and he will give you the answer over and over and over. 
You know, around here at Cornwall, part of our DNA is pray first. It's a very simple idea that before we do anything, we pause to pray. We pray in thanksgiving. We pray for help, for health. We pray for the how and the what. So simply engage and say, God, what would you have me do? What good works do you have in store for me to accomplish for you? Simply ask. What's critical about this message and this passage is this. What was intended for the church at Ephesus then applies to us today. Everyone in this room, everyone in Skagit, everyone watching on the live stream around the state, the country, and around the world. You see, previous chapters of your stories will vary. Some of your stories may involve drugs or alcohol or infidelity or greed or lust or a strong rebellion against God or an apathetic detachment from God. But however your story would read, our stories would be similar in that we have a past dead life, a life of the walking dead a life controlled by our flesh, being used by, as pawns by Satan to accomplish his work. On a recent vacation, I learned from a jeweler that if you want to highlight something especially beautiful or expensive, you put it in front of something dark. It's why a jeweler will, will when he's selling diamonds or pearls, often put them on a piece of black velvet. The darker the backdrop, the more the stone will shine. Well, I can't think of anything darker than the reality of our dead life in sin. And verses one through three show us what that used to be. And then Paul uses that to contrast the grace of God that intercedes on our behalf in verses four through 10. And there's nothing more beautiful and there's nothing more expensive. And that gift is available to all of us. And it is then and then alone that we are unified when we can share in a new, alive life. And it's then that we can confidently and boldly and enthusiastically and gratefully say what Paul would write to the Galatians. He'd say this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart once said, to talk well and eloquently is a very great art, but an equally great one is to know the right moment to stop. This is that moment. If I'm being honest with you, I wrestled all week with this particular message. I battled having to say more, to fill time, to add a fill-in for the sake of adding time and adding a fill-in. And all week long, I kept hearing the, the same still small voice saying, it's enough. It's enough. Stop. So I'm going to break the preacher's rule book. I'm not going to give you a personal application. And instead, I'm going to leave you with the inspired word of God. So if you're 
following along the link, I invite you to close the link. If you're following on your phone, I invite you to turn off your phone. Same in Skagit and online. And I'm gonna read for us these 10 verses. Right out of the NLT. If you're comfortable, it'll help you focus, close your eyes, and let these words, Paul's reminder for the church then and today, to be our truth as we close. Paul would write, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very nature, we're subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God, but God, rich in mercy, loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in future examples of incredible wealth and grace, kindness towards us as shown in all he's done as we are united in Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you first believed. And you can't take credit for this. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the things we've done so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us so long ago.